Pardon me, but does your make it bad? Greetings and salutations. My name is Tyler Ellenick, and this is Raven's Rule, the podcast where we chronicle all things 90s can rock. In this episode, I speak with Sonny Greenwich Jr., one of the founding members of Montreal, Quebec's Boot Sauce. Boot Sauce started around 89, and you released your first record at 90. Um, what was kind of the music scene alike in Montreal around, around that time? Well, it's, it's funny because I had just returned from I was living in Paris right before that oh wow and and the other two guys were uh, they were in London so uh, we we didn't really actually know what was going on in Montreal really because I had only been back maybe a month even or something like that that I had been back from Paris Um, I think I I think I spent a little bit of time in Winnipeg because at the time my wife at the time was from Winnipeg so I might have spent maybe a month in Winnipeg and then came back to Montreal after living in Paris for a few years, you know. So I didn't really know that much about what was going on. And in fact, I only met the other two guys, uh, Perry and Drew, because a friend of ours uh, was friends with them. And, and that's how, that's what we, I mean, we didn't even meet, meet up musically really until this person introduced, our, uh, introduced us, you know, kind of funny that way. And do you remember what kind of uh, led to that first jam together? No, actually, we were at at this friend's house, um, and uh, there was a keyboard there with a, the, which was a, one of the early samplers, I guess. Uh, I, I'm not really sure what keyboard it was, but it had like one of those crazy drum loop things happening in it. So we were just basically dancing around the room, slapping the the the, the sampler, you know. <laughs> um, and then I said, "Well, look, I I play guitar, man. I could I could I could put some guitar parts on this, you know, no problem, you know." And then I and I kind of started from there, huh. you know. And and in fact, uh, from the day we met to the day we were actually signed and gigging, uh, it was six months. Oh wow! Do you remember how many gigs you played before record label starting to get interested in you guys? Uh, I think they were there from the very first gig. Oh wow! Yeah. Um, what I mean, we just had we had some friends that were in the business. Um, so our manager Steve Ship, I think he was actually our manager before we even did the first gig, huh. and he had heard some of the music, and um, I think he had passed it on to Corky Lang at Polygram, um, and that's how they ended up coming to see us. Um, I think our first gig was at, at the Fufu Electric uh, in Montreal. A legendary place, yeah. Yeah, man, we we <laughs> we had fun in that place too. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so as as remember, well, in in any case, it was if it wasn't the very first gig, it was very very shortly after the very first gig, and I think around Montreal we did probably about twenty twenty gigs or so before we were actually sent out on tour to um, open for fifty four forty oh, wow. right across the country. Yeah. That that was our first our first big break, really. So, what was it like not uh, playing that many shows together? Yet now you're thrust on a tour going across country. I mean, did you have a lot of kinks to work out, or was it pretty seamless? No, it was it was pretty seamless. Uh, um, I mean, we never rehearsed. Or, I mean, one of the biggest tours we 
did, which was probably, let's say, the second or third time we went across Canada. I think we rehearsed twice <laughs> before going out. <laughs> and, and, you know, it wasn't even really much of a rehearsal. But, I mean, basically the idea was that we everyone knew their parts. Uh, we We played most of the songs identically to the record because we had samplers and a uh, like a computer running them, right? Mm. So we had no keyboards live, but all the keyboards were being run from the computer, which Perry would run. Oh wow! Right, and that's how that's how we started out. So we'd have a click track coming up through the monitors in the front, right? And we would play to that. Huh? Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, I mean that's 1990. I mean that's the early early days of that kind of technology and taking on the road, no less. Yeah. Yeah, we were we were right right on the forefront of it. I mean, we had uh, the S nine fifty and all those samplers like right when they came out, basically. Huh. And because actually it was really stupid, we just thought keyboard players looked stupid, so we didn't want to have. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was basically it. You know, it was nothing to do with anything other than that, really. And and Perry was the keyboard player. Um, Perry was um, uh, like a. He went to like grade 10 or grade 11 keyboard piano schooling or whatever it was, you know. So he was actually quite a good keyboard player, but he didn't want to play it live. He wanted to play the telly, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And the hair looks better slinging down with the guitar strap. and the... Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> you can channel his Inno Nunu Betancourt. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and Nunu was around at the time too. Uh, we um, We never actually met him. But they were trying to get us together. We were recording in, um, well, we were staying at Joan Jett's house in in, in back New up, York. Back up, how did, how did that come to be? How did the Joan Jett's oh, come man. I didn't see that coming. Yeah, our, our, our manager was friends with her manager, basically. And they basically got together and decided they were going to try and, and run things for us. That was, yeah, Kenny Laguna, you know. Huh. So... Um, she had this apartment right on the water, uh, on the, on the ocean there, um, right outside New York city. So we stayed there and we were recording in, 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 in her apartment, basically. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Crazy stuff. That is nuts. Did you uh, get to meet her and hang with her at all? Or? Oh yeah. She sang on one of the songs. Like, um, oh, yeah? yeah, she sang backups. Yeah, she was kind of quiet and timid about it. Though. She didn't, um, she didn't really want to, you know, make a big deal out of it. But she was on on uh, which album was that? That would have been, I think it was maybe Sleeping Booty. Yeah. So uh, I kind of missed this, but Boot Sauce is one of the most one of the more memorable names of '90s can rock. <laughs> Do you remember the origin story behind the name, and was there anything else in contention? Uh, no, actually, it was that that was the name right from when I said it. Um, <laughs> it was basically I had a I had a little poodle named Bibi, and she uh, left something on the floor, and I stepped in it, and I said, "Oh, I'm not boot sauce again." <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> and they yeah, and they all laughed and said, "Okay, that sounds that's it, that's good. We'll take that. We'll use that." <laughs> and then you had you had a theme of toilet humor kind of throughout the rest of your career too. As oh, well. oh yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> it all started sure. back then. Interesting. Yeah, 
yeah we, i mean there was we 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 love to have fun with the stuff you know um we weren't trying to take ourselves too seriously or anything really <laughs> speaking of did you uh legit send terry david mulligan an autograph toilet seat yeah we did yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> oh yeah that was a that was a funny one too oh that you see now here's another another part of that story uh, I actually, one of the things that happened to us that I'm not really too proud of, but we were playing <laughs> at, um, I, I can't remember what, what the, what the name of the show was, but there was all kinds of people on there and, uh, you know, big famous Canadian bands and also, um, uh, the guys from Spinal Tap were on. Oh, wow. So they, they, they came on right before us, right. And played the gig cause they were doing like four gigs in Canada across the country in one day. <laughs> you know, flying oh, from wow. place to place to place, right? I think it must have been Canada Day. That must have been what it was, right? Yeah. But our our tour manager who was there, uh, who was also happened to be Joan Jett's tour manager, then cleared the backstage when we came to play, and everyone was really angry with us. So there's <laughs> another. Yeah, we're really pissed off that we really probably shouldn't have done it. But um, anyway, that was that was his thing. Because you know he was used to used to Joan, and you know Joan would have nobody backstage kind of thing, and that's what he did. I also I also I also once saw him. Uh, he's a very bad guy. <laughs> I mean, a good guy to have on your side, a bad guy if you wanted to cause trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, on that first record, did you just uh, tour Canada, or did they take you out in states or Europe or anything like that? Uh, the first record we did mostly Canada, as I said, we we went out with fifty four forty, so that must have been in nineteen ninety. I can't remember. Yeah, I, I don't have the dates or anything really, but I, that must have been nineteen ninety. So we did the, the cross Canada tour with them first, and I think by the time we got to Vancouver, then everyone's a winner had started to really take off. So, but the first song that was out was uh, scratching the hole right and that was that was the first video as well and that's uh, that's actually what kind of first that what what first got people coming to see us um you know opening for 5440 but i think by the time we got to, across the country then the uh, the other song was going pretty well now uh something else interesting that not i mean you might have been the only band to do this at least canadian band at the time but you released like a remix record right after your debut album well, I mean, apparently there was a it was a big thing happening in the states at that at that time of albums being uh, sort of dance albums being redone immediately, you know, or even simultaneously. Um, we didn't really know that much about it, but we uh, I think I can't remember who it was, but one somebody brought up the idea, and we said, sure, why not? You know, the more the merrier, really, because mm -hmm. we we were just having fun with the stuff, you know. Um, and I, I can't even remember the guy's name that did that reboot thing, um, but there there was a guy, some some kind of guy from New York came up or whatever to do it, and uh, put his own spin on the songs. Yeah, there was a, kind of a funny thing. I don't know why. I don't. I really can't remember exactly why that was that we did that, but I know it was a thing in New York. So I think that was basically it. And you know, Steve was living in New York, our manager and. And we were spending a lot of time in New York. In fact, we recorded uh, most most of the Brown album just outside New York City. Yeah. Anyway, basically just out, outside outside of the outside of the city. Most most of the stuff that we recorded was around the city, around New York. 
So we were very much kind of, uh, <laughs> I, I guess, sort of a New York band almost in a way, like, you know, Montreal is thrown into <laughs> to New York. <laughs> and it, it, the sink or swim, kids. <laughs> you know, it was kind of funny. Um, now, Sonny Greenwich Sr. is, you know, widely known and as one of Canada's greatest jazz guitarists probably to ever live. Did you ask him for any advice when you first kind of got the label interest and got the recordings? And did you go to him for any kind of, because uh, you said sink or swim, so I'm just curious if you went to him for any yeah. kind of advice in any of those uh, matters that he would have had more experience in. Well, I mean, it was kind of a, a whole different scene. I mean, the the jazz scene is, is completely different than um, the rock scene. So he didn't really know that much about the rock scene, you know. Mm-hmm. But he, I mean, I suppose he would, he was in a way he would let, let, you know, make sure that we didn't get robbed, that kind of thing. And he said, that was the most important thing, you know, that, to, to try and make sure we had a proper, you know, management and we had lawyers and all that kind of stuff. We still managed to get robbed, but anyway, you know, that's another story. <laughs> you know, the lawyers can rob you whether, you know, no matter what. Um, but, uh, yeah. So in terms of him helping us, no, there wasn't that whole, not a whole bunch of stuff uh, done with him. You know, uh, although he he played on a few of my own demos before that, he actually played some guitar on some of them, and I and I've they're lost now. No idea where they are. Gone, I'd say. What was it like, kind of, uh, now that you have the Brown album under under your belt, and you guys are are you know a little more seasoned since you know you toured quite a bit, and going into uh, the writing and recording of Bull. Do you uh, remember the kind of mindset of the band and um, the kind of writing of that record? Yeah, again, we we started out writing stuff. I um, well, let's see how we did. I think that was mostly in 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 a studio in Montreal that we did the pre-production uh, of of the writing of that one, and we recorded it in the states again, but not in the, um, where was it? In Rhode Island somewhere. But yes, uh, so what was the guy's name? Uh, Matt Taylor was the guy's name. His, his studio in Montreal. We did a whole lot of demos there. And I think that's pretty much where we demoed everything. Although we had a like kind of a little writing kit that would uh, follow us around, you know, like Perry would keep along with us. So if ever we had an idea, we could throw it in there or throw it down, you know. And as I said, normally starting with uh, the sampler first, and then building up a groove from there, kind of thing. Um, anything specific on like uh, Love Monkey Number Nine? Because that is like my favorite jam by you guys. <laughs> anything specific um, on the writing of that or, or what you need or touching cloth those are like my three the, the holy trifecta for me on that on that record <laughs> um love monkey i think started from an idea of drew's i think yeah i think drew started that one um and the guitar riff i think was perry's as well on that um, so that's that's how that one came about, and it was it was kind of a it, it started out as kind of a joke, um, you know, and and our take on sort of animal testing and all that sort of thing, you know, it kind of went from being like a like a joke at the beginning, and then sort of we started adding ideas into it to try and uh, you know to get away from being just just humorous, you know, and and on the first record, um, what was that? Well, uh, payment time was a song that. That was sort of written about the, um, not about exactly, but it's sort of referencing Native Americans, you know, mm. you know, um, 
so so basically love love monkey came out of that idea of wanting to say something but with with kind of humor you know and then um what you need was myself and alan and we definitely wrote that in bat taylor's studio because I, I sort of remember that one <laughs> <laughs> because it, it was basic it, it was basically uh the song was finished when we brought it in to the band and the uh, the only thing that was added to that i think was the the sort of um, guitar sliding thing that Perry did on the off the beginning, you know, the, that little bit um, that, that Perry put on. But other than that, the song was done before we even um, started recording the the album. Lyrics, like the as well, demo, the, yeah, the lyrics and everything. Myself and, and Al wrote the lyrics. Is that because uh, watching the video earlier today, and you is that you actually doing that falsetto? Oh God, no! <laughs> I was like, man, because like, your voice is deep, sir. I was like, man, you... yeah, yeah. No, if I if I could sing like that, boy, I would, you know, I would have had my own band. <laughs> That's what I was wondering. <laughs> no, that was uh, what was his name? Uh, Michael Johnson uh, from the Johnson Brothers uh, in in the states. Um, he produced um, uh, New Kids on the Block. That's right. Oh no way! You know, that was him singing that. Because oh, wow. uh, we were in Rhode Island at the time, and and he came to the studio, and uh, put that on. And also the Lemmy's on that record, uh, on the end of um, what was that song that you said? Uh, Touching cloth. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So Lemmy's on the end of Touching cloth.
I was going to ask you about that. You had Lemmy, I think, Phil as well from Motorhead. How did those two fellas end up on a Bootsosh record? Well, that is exactly, it was a crazy story, but the, um, I think it was like the Monsters of Rock or one of those tours that was coming through. Um, but the hurricane, what hurricane was it? Now, one of the, one of the hurricanes that came through in that year, I guess it was, was it 91, maybe 92? I can't remember, but about a huge hurricane was coming through. So the, the, all the guys were in Rhode Island, but the concert was canceled. Huh. So we so we said, oh well, listen, guys, we we're, we got the studio free here, and it was a big enough studio. I said, hey, bring everyone down, <laughs> and we, <laughs> and they all they all came by. We, we we went to the liquor store and basically bought everything they had in the little <laughs> town, and uh, and just recorded overnight. And um, the you can die was the guy from um, the singer from a uh, metal church. Do you remember oh, them? Yeah, yeah, that him singing the way up high. But <laughs> that's him, the guy from Middle Church. Amazing. And Le- and Lemmy's in the middle, and at the end. Uh, and uh, who wrote the lyrics to Touching Cloth? Because that is some random. Is that just completely <laughs> random stuff, or is there anything behind any of that stuff? Because it's out there. Yeah, it was basically everything that was going on with us. We were just la- having a laugh. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think Perry mo- Perry wrote most of those words, most of them. They the kind of rap stuff, you know. Yeah. And and I, I mean it was it was just a it was it was a, it was just a joke really you know but yeah. we were having fun with it. <laughs> Love that track, man. And touching touching cloth came from uh, a friend of ours, dad, who was a old Irish guy who, uh, you know, touching cloth means having to go to the bathroom really bad. <laughs> I had no idea. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's an old Irish thing about you know he had to go so bad he was touching cloth. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing! Yeah, uh, you also in the liner notes that record. You think uh, Ian Asprey from the Cult? How did you guys uh, did you guys meet each other in the Brown album tour, or how is that? Yeah, he he came to see us in Toronto. I think his girlfriend or wife at the time was from Toronto, huh. and he came to see he came to see us play uh, at least a couple of times, and took us out on tour in, in the UK with him. Oh wow. Yeah, so we did uh, like Wembley with him, and uh, then a bunch, bunch, a bunch of places. We played in Ireland as well, and but all, pretty much all over the place in the UK with them for for the one tour, um, which was uh, I can't remember what, what album it was, Ceremonial Stomp, I think it was called. So, what was it like going over to the UK? I mean, for the first time, playing with a massive band like the Cult, playing Wembley. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it. I mean. You know, we didn't we didn't really think that much of it, to be honest. I no. mean, it was great to go touring, but I mean, we we had already been touring, and the, the the guys were already living. They had lived in London, so they had loads of friends over there. I had lived in Paris already, so to me, it was kind of like coming home to Europe almost. <laughs> you know, um, I think for us, we we kind of thought, I think we 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 were bigger, too big for our own britches, basically. You know what I mean? Mm. Like we we had. Um, with a little success comes a little more ego. Is that what you kind of? Oh, well, they, they, these guys had, I mean, I, myself included, we had, we had egos before we even met. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah, they, yeah they, it was great touring with them. They were really nice and they were, uh, I, I mean, they, they treated us great. And uh, I, I really enjoyed that tour. Really enjoyed it. Now with Bull, with uh, coming out the success of the Brown album, I think the budget, the budget for the videos, they get bigger, I would imagine. What was your guys' approach to like music videos and 
I mean, the concepts were, came from us, basically. And myself and Perry edited all the videos. Oh, wow. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, so no, we we basically did everything. Although I mean, we we did bring people in to uh, to direct them and that sort of stuff, you know. So and you know, uh, um, what's his name, Roy, Roy Pike. Sorry, sorry, Roy. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Roy Pike was was uh, the director on the first few of them, and he just basically came in and took whatever ideas we had and ran with them, you know. So like Masterstroke, for instance, we were uh, three days. <laughs> being blinded by flashing lights, you know. It, it was, yeah. you know I mean, it, it, after being in a strobe for eight hours, it was hard to walk. <laughs> I can imagine it's hard to watch for three minutes. I could imagine. Before. Yeah, it was it was unbelievable. Um, and in fact, um, that that video ended up in the Museum for Cinematographic Arts in Boston. No way. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not sure if it's still there, but in the in the day it did because it was it was it was quite something that. <laughs> it's interesting because that, that I was watching the Master Show video as well, um, and there's a shot in there because you guys were, were often kind of uh, compared to like you know like Canadian Red Hot Chili Peppers and you, know, yeah. you would hear these kinds of comparisons and, you know, if you look at the research, I mean the the Chili Peppers that a lot of people know started after kind of you know it was you know there's pre-blood sugar sex and, and blood sugar sex onward but the brown album came out a year before blood sugar sex and it has a lot of the direction that chilies would end up going into on that record and the master stroke video has you know has is eerily kind of has like a give it away vibe to it it has that close of a drew's mouth and well i mean the thing is they, they definitely knew about us you know oh, yeah. uh, and we knew about them for sure um, there was an album that they did that was one of their earlier albums. It was more kind of dancey stuff, and that was really what what um, what we were thinking of. You know that that kind of approach, rather rather than the the sort of like I kind of start started losing interest in them <laughs> when they went blood blood sugar. You know after yeah. that, um, I liked I liked the more kind of produced stuff that they had been doing earlier. It's funny too because you guys both did like a version of Roller Coaster, Love Roller Coaster as well. Like they did your, they you did it first, and they did it like two years later for the Beavis and Butthead soundtrack. Really? Yeah, no, I didn't even I didn't even know that. <laughs> yeah, like you have elements of that of uh, you know Roller Coaster Love in in uh, in that track, and they did basically something exactly similar like four years later. Wow! Like I said, they they, they definitely knew about us. We we just we never actually met, uh, although we had played in a lot of the same places uh over the years um you know uh, we we just it just the way it happened we never we never uh, we were never actually in the same town at the same time where we could actually hang or anything like that how did you catch wind that they knew of uh you guys oh i mean like of course everyone was talking to us about them and i'm sure that all the same people were talking to them yeah, about us probably it was that that kind of thing you know <laughs> um yeah, it was weird because Drew, they, they even kind of look a little bit alike, Anthony and Drew. It's kind of a yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's it, yeah, it's a funny, funny thing. And and in fact, we we probably should have stayed in L.A., you know, uh, rather than come coming back to to uh, Montreal. Uh, we probably would have done better for ourselves if we had have concentrated more on the states. Although we did quite a bit in the states, we played New York all the time, and you know uh, that. But we only did the one tour down. Um, down the west coast oh wow yeah so that 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 was uh, we probably should have done more down there 
did you guys actually relocate down to LA and do some writing no, no, or something? No, or? no, no, not, not at all. See, that's what I'm saying. We, that's what we should have probably done. Yeah. I mean, if we had have done that, I'm sure we would have got a lot further. Because the thing about LA is that if once once you're in front of these people, they, they won't they won't come see you anywhere. But if you know, if they could walk down the street and go see you, well, they might, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, on on the second record, um, you were no longer the support band, you were bringing out bands to support you. Do you remember um what it was like making that transition and did you have a say in kind of who you brought with you? I'm not sure if we had a say exactly. I mean, I know that when we did the big tour, which is after that, when we had the Sons of Freedom and those guys on, we definitely picked them to come out with us. Um, but the first few tours when we were going out headlining, I think they were basically trying to help whatever other younger bands were, were around at the time. So the Butt Monkeys, I think, were on the same label as us. So... I think it was just kind of a natural thing for them to, to, to come on with us for that tour. They still remember, like I was talking with Rick Jacket from Finger Eleven, and he, and he still remembers that tour with you guys, and he remembers uh, you guys switching up the lyrics to Love Monkey Number 9 and then singing <laughs> Butt Monkey Number 9. <laughs> he still remembers that and thinks back fondly on it. So, uh, oh, well, that's, that's what I, now, now that you say that, I do remember that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but sure, I mean, you know, why not? Yeah. Uh, uh, beautiful what were some of that you mentioned you kind of touched on it going down to the states a bit um was it a priority um to break it outside of canada as well or or was it you guys just kind of happy being you know on much music in canada and doing those big kind of canada day festivals here and you know um how much of a priority was it to make it uh success outside of the borders of canada well, I'd say that it was it was our probably our number one priority, really. <laughs> but um, but uh, it, you know it's it's not easy, and we played some dives in in the states, and and we did you know we we put in the time trying to do it, but it's it's hard, as I said. Like I think because uh, Steve Ship was was basically um, a New York based uh, music agent. The slash manager, whatever, right? And also, also Kenny Laguna. They were they were based out of New York, but I think if we had been in L.A., we would have done much better. Hmm. But it's just the, just the way things happened, you know. Um, like we we played up up and down the East Coast, and we and we did. As I said we did the one tour down the West Coast, and that was uh, probably the one that that actually helped us the most along the way. But you know, it was a, it was a different time then. It was also right on the cusp of of going from vinyl to CDs, and also you know at at the point like by the time we the last CD was out, it was you know CDs were eighteen dollars or whatever, or something crazy, or twenty five dollars, or something stupid at the end of it, you know. Right. So I think we 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 got lost in the shuffle of that whole thing that the switch over from vinyl to CD and also the fact that people stopped buying as many CDs because they were just getting gouged. So right, right, right before the whole uh, Napster thing and all of that, you know, or, or actually at the same time as the Napster thing. And in fact, uh, I mean, none of the boot stuff was available until maybe within the last year, I'd say on the Spotify or iTunes. Is that something you control or is that something the, the label just kind of does out of well, well, I, I I started just putting you know you know I've got this YouTube channel so I I uh, 
basically started using the songs in the background and waiting to see who was gonna, who'd come and you know sue me or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I knew someone would come out of the woods at some point. Uh, and and finally, um, I think Drew might have met up with the guys at Universal somewhere in Canada within the last year or so, and because we were talking about doing another tour across uh, across Canada. Oh wow. Right, so um, I think with that in mind, they they finally re-released them. So, what was the kind of relationship with the record label throughout? Like, you know, was it a, was it was a, a good relationship, or did you guys kind of battle each other? Or yeah, I I think I think like basically we uh, I don't know how to how to put it. We we didn't exactly fight with them, but we didn't like kind of what they were doing and they you know they, they didn't do things properly that's why there was on one of the albums we had our <laughs> we had our own listening uh, um you know the the order of the songs to play right oh so if you put this yeah so you yeah, there's it's on one of the albums that we have our own sequence in the in the um you know in the fold out piece of paper thing huh. right so a, a different a different um, sequence than it's actually on the cd you know because they forced us into doing that what was their kind of motivation behind that i mean do you remember what the... well i don't know they, they they wanted to have like the hit up the front and you know and whatever you know they didn't want to have it as an album you know they wanted they wanted you know where we saw it as a whole piece of work they saw it as like okay here's the one song that that song's great and this song's great and then stick them in the front and you know that's it huh kind of kind of way but i mean we didn't really know what we were doing either you know i mean, i can't you know we were dumb kids really you know but we you know we we uh we were very opinionated <laughs> um and also kind of uh, because corky was kind of very close to us really to uh, close to the band and the you know he was our our sort of go between um you know to to the label he was the A&R man, Corky Lang, you know, from Mountain. Mm -hmm. So, um, um, so we would just we would just basically dump on him, and he would he would tell the you know the label what we wanted to do, and sometimes they they acquiesced, and other other times they didn't. You know, was there uh, somebody in the band that um, kind of took the lead on your behalf? I mean, to, to go with Corky to fight those kind of battles, or? Well, I mean, we all tried to do it, but I mean, there's you know we could. Yeah, we, we couldn't do it. You know, I mean, Perry, there was there was a bit of a power struggle, <laughs> as you can imagine, with a bunch of hard heads like we we, we had with the band. <laughs> um, and 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 basically, I think if we had done things differently, we we might have continued on. You know, hmm. I mean, where I remember having that we, on the last record. I mean, Perry was actually was actually there for recording it, but but basically, we had a falling out in England. Oh wow! You know, and uh, so the, that that was when um, we were recording the last record. So he didn't actually. I'm not even sure if he's on any of that last record or not. Hmm. Although he was he was there for most of the most of the time. That's when we when we when uh, Fraz joined the band for a while there. We'll get towards that in a little bit, but um, you kind of touched on touring America and touring the East Coast, and I was listening to the uh, Dope Nostalgia podcast, and you were telling a tragically hip story. I was wondering if you could uh, repeat um, your kind of relationship with the hip and, uh, you know, for the, for the listeners of this show. 
Yeah, those guys, man, just great, great guys. So anyway, basically, we were in Boston, and we were playing, uh, I'm not sure what, what the name of the place we were at, but some some place in Boston. And these uh, these guys walk in and uh, come up to the stage. You know, it was it was maybe five in the afternoon or something, and, and drop a, a case of Molson Canadian on the stage right in front of us. And it's like, <laughs> And they're like, whoa, hey, thanks, guys. Hey, cheers. I really, really appreciate it. See you later. Now, fuck off. Get out of here. Because, <laughs> <laughs> of course, we, I, I didn't recognize any of them. Right? I didn't, you know, this was like, the, I guess, our very first tour before we met them or anything. Uh, so it turns out, yeah, it, it was them. And they, they, came, they came. And shortly after that, uh, I mean, we figured out who it was. And then we would we would leave a case of beer for them. And they would leave a case of beer for us, and back and forth as we were touring around the the East Coast, <laughs> it was really really great. They're just super nice guys, and they you know, they helped us out once as well. We were in Kingston playing, and our gear broke down, and they lent us their their whole rig basically. Oh wow! Yeah, just they they were home and they weren't using it, and then they, you know. To an hour later, it was it was there for us to use at this big show that we were doing in Kingston. Um, what other kind of relationships did you uh, develop with the Canadian bands of the time? Did you guys have like a camaraderie with certain bands, or did you have enemies of certain bands, or what was your kind of dynamic with the rest of the music that was happening in the country? Well, I, as I said, I think we were just kind of, you know, we were big headed and stupid, really. So we didn't we didn't hate anybody. We, we we got along with a lot a lot of the guys. I mean, like as I said, the fifty four forty guys were, were. I mean, they were instrumental in us uh, getting where we where we did get to in, uh, after the first record. And I love the Sons of Freedom.
had so much fun together, the, those guys. And you know, we were friends with um, uh, the Pursuit of Happiness. And uh, there was a few people that we knew sort of like that, you know. Um, but but I, I'd say we don't really have, like, I, I, I haven't talked to anybody really from Canada besides besides Jeff Martin, um, you know, since I left, which was probably about, um, I don't know what year I left, 97, I think I left oh, wow. Canada. You guys have actually won three Junos for album design, which is yeah, might be unprecedented. I mean, within like a three, it was like back to back to back or something. Yeah, like, it was. Well, that that was J.W. Stewart, um, and he, uh, a local Montreal artist. Uh, I mean, fa- absolutely fantastic and and a, a, a brilliant guy. I think he he did uh, some of the uh, Men Without Hats covers as well. No, oh, cool. So he did. He he was he was just the guy that, that we knew. I think we were introduced to him by the record label, and um, and we just loved his stuff. And basically, he was a great guy to hang with. And and because of that, and, and crazy, and his art was fabulous. So we just kept going with it, you know. And and he would he he would go with any idea, you know, like the cover of Sleeping Booty with the the the. the Chick with a dick, you know, <laughs> kind of, you know, that, that, that's actually a statue from, uh, from the Louvre. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, did he come up with the logo as well? The Bootsauce logo? Yep. Yep. He did. Yeah. That's yep. awesome. Love that logo. So you kind of touched on it, but, um, what kind of led to the, the end of Bootsauce? I mean, you, you know, you guys had, you said a little bit of a power struggle between you and Perry and then he left and do you, can you kind of take yeah. us through the kind of last year or two of Bootsauce's, the, the Bootsauce run? Well, I, yeah, I can't really remember it, uh, to be honest. But the thing is, I, I know there was a lot of pushing and shoving back and forth kind of between, uh, I guess, myself, Perry, and Drew, you know. I, and we, we, we had, we've, <laughs> we, we had fist fights loads of times, you know, like, oh, wow. the, like falling out of the van, punching each other in the head, you know, like, <laughs> like full-on fist fights, like, going, <laughs> uh, you know, so... Uh, I mean, it's funny. It was it was even kind of funny, funny then. <laughs> we did a we did a, a show. Uh, oh, it was in Winnipeg. That's right. Where it was, I think it was Alan and Drew got into a fist fight over <laughs> some something. Who knows what? And rolled out, rolled out of the van, and the tour manager grabbed Drew and slammed him into the van to stop them fighting. <laughs> Anyway, we did the show that night, and Drew ended up, by the end of the show, they had to take him out in an ambulance from, from having the, like his ribs broken from this fight earlier <laughs> oh, in the no. night. So when the show, like the, the last, you know, the last curtain call, whatever, it was like they literally put him on a stretcher and took him out uh, in an ambulance. Uh, oh, That's amazing. Dear. Yeah, ridiculous. Ridiculous stuff. Anyway, so basically, that, that 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 was the kind of thing that was going on the whole time, you know. Uh, and you know, they would split us up into different groups. Like myself and Perry went to uh, went went to New York, and and Al and Drew uh, recorded in Montreal, and then they, you know, they do stuff like that just to see what we would come up with, you know, splitting us up and writing, you know, as as different different sections. But then finally, it, it, I think it came it came to a head because Perry just basically was was uh, I, I don't know how to I, I don't know how much to say or, or <laughs> he was a bad boy, very bad boy, 
and and it, we just couldn't ha- handle it anymore, you know. Mm-hmm. And basically, he, he, uh, then myself and him had a fist fight outside the Marquee Club in, in right downtown London. Oh, wow! <laughs> and that was that was basically the end of it. That it was Perry was gone. Once Perry was gone, then it sort of it like the tension in the band eased, and it, it was much more uh, happy go lucky in the band. But then we were sort of falling out of favor with everyone anyway, like, you know, in terms of sound and all that. I think we were a little bit too, um, like, too produced for people and whatever. They were, you know, people were kind of going more for the grungy thing at, at that point. Yeah, I suppose after that fist fight with Perry, <laughs> in, in, the, in the actual, in the marquee club, like right in the, in the which is no longer there, by the way, um, right in the, in the doorway. <laughs> on, the, on the street in, in London, just shows you how what kind of crazy kids we were. <laughs> now yeah. you, you mentioned um the changing of like the the sound, like the, what was kind of popular in alternative rock. Did you guys um, yeah, how were you guys dealing with that? Like the you know the birth of grunge, and you know how was it kind of navigating through those waters? I mean, did you guys ever think about changing your sound at all, or or how did those kind of conversations go? Uh, certainly, the grunge thing. Um, affected us. I mean, we we went for much heavier guitars towards the end of the thing than than we probably would have hmm. er, earlier. Although we we've always had heavy guitars, but uh, but it was kind of less dancey and more um more rocky, I'd say, towards the end. You know, um, and I think that was that was uh, directly uh, influenced by the grunge thing. You know, and and the you know the guitar guitar hero thing, you know, whatever, <laughs> you know, that, right. that 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 kind of way. I mean, we always used the loops, and we always started with that sort of thing. So even right at the very end, we were still doing that kind of stuff, the sampling and and the crazy stuff. Although we didn't use samples the way other people would, where uh, you know the other bands would just take a sample and and sing over it, whereas we would use the sample to create our own music with it. You know the. That was one thing that we did completely differently than everyone else, you know. Um, but but again, that was there right till the end too. It's just with, with heavier guitars on top of it. And we had John Fryer, um, who had done Pretty Hate Machine, uh, was was in London with us doing that record. Oh wow! And uh, he um, he got into some kind of situation with the record company with Polygram that that uh, he took his name off the album. Um, so, but I don't know what happened there exactly. Um, I don't remember. But he produced the whole record. He did. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, we, my, my, you know, myself and him, basically. Do you remember the kind of like the last conversation you guys had together when you said, "Okay, this is this is over," and um, oh, we never had that conversation. Never had. No, never had. That how did it just kind of? Uh, how did it just kind of end? You guys just yeah. We did one last gig in Toronto, and it was we had no idea it was the last gig. It was just the last gig that happened, you know. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, it just it, it it wasn't like it wasn't a big enough draw. We didn't we played a place out sort of uh, down, um, um, I guess it's towards the beaches somewhere that sort of way. Sort of a big big enough room, but. Um, not not downtown anyway, and and not that many people showed up, and and it was kind of like, it was like, it just felt, 
I'd say almost sad, you know, almost almost Spinal Tap end, you know. Hmm. Although we never broke up in, in terms of that, we never never uh, said, "Look, this is it." It's just we never got back together after that. No, <laughs> yeah, like we never we never had that conversation ever. Not even with the Steve Ship or anything. So what what would they uh would like would Steve Ship or Polygram be calling you guys saying you know get ready for the next record or how how did that kind of I'm just curious how no I, I think they I think they just thought that they, they, I I think that because it didn't do well enough for them I don't think there was another record coming uh, you know what I mean mm-hmm. I think it was kind of like that and also the uh, the the polygram had been taken over by somebody else at that point. Uh, there was a new president of Polygram, and um, I think Universal were just about to buy them, or or there was something in the works anyway. But basically, we were on, on the cusp of everything, and because of that, we just got lost in the shuffle, hmm. you know. And we did we hadn't done well enough to to um, you know to, to to make them really worry about us. They didn't care about us really. You kind of brought it up earlier, but you guys just, uh, you and Alan just released something that was recorded like 25, 30 years ago called Brain Smack.
you know, if it would have been released in the late nineties, it was like, that's kind of what was hitting, like kind of these industrial yeah. electronic vibes, you know, it sounds really of, of like, it would have been something successful in the era. What was the story behind recording it and how come it never was released until recently? Well, ba- basically, uh, when we realized that the, the boot sauce thing wasn't going to happen and that there was no more doing it, me and Alan just said, well, fuck this. We're just going to do it ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and that's basically what we did. We just went went to, you know, we'd spend from, let's say, 8 to midnight in my house every night writing songs. And we, uh, um, a studio in Montreal, Studio Z, or Studio Z, rather, um, offered us time to record the record against, you know, whatever, only in the masters kind of thing. So myself and I just basically wrote all these songs and then went and recorded them and brought Johnny in to do the drums and uh, and that was that. And then again, because everything was was in flux in those days, we couldn't get it released. Like, hmm. I mean, you know, there was everyone was was chomping at the bit for it and they wanted it and this and that, but it just it just it was right at that time when you know when the music industry were they were so worried about Napster and not making any money that they just wouldn't take any risks at all, you know, in terms of putting out something. Hmm. You know, they wouldn't they wouldn't they would give us any money. They wouldn't do anything, nothing at all. So basically, then I said, well, but okay, well, I've had I've had it, and I and I. Uh, <laughs> I took my, I threw my my toys out of the pram, <laughs> <laughs> and I and I came over to Ireland. I came over. I, I'd been here once before for for Christmas or something like that. My mom, my mom was living here at at the time, and then I came over and uh, uh, I I met a girl and that broke up my my uh, my marriage. <laughs> I met a girl here, yeah, and and that and, and so basically, then I then I I spent the rest. I've been here ever since, you know. Do you catch all the you know the hip go through there back in the day? Did you, you catch their gigs or tea party or anybody like that? You would uh, travel through. I, I played with Jeff a lot. I mean, I did a whole bunch of gigs with him. How did that relationship start? The you and Jeff Martin the tea party seems like kind of a little bit of an odd pairing. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know. He's a big, big rocker, and he likes to party, <laughs> and he likes to party hard, and I like to party hard, or I did. Um, and he was in Ireland, I was in Ireland, so I just said, hey. And I went and found him, and then I said, hey, you dumb fuck. You, you want to make some music? <laughs> and he said, yeah, sure, let's do it. <laughs> and, that, and that's how the Americanics was born? Yeah, sort of, yeah. It was, it was called Virgil Kane at the time. The band was called Virgil Kane. Um, you know, kind of, kind of like uh, Crazy Chester. You know, the, the 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 band stuff. You know. Anyway, so it came from it came from it came from that. But but basically, uh, as I said, I I, I I just walked up to him and and he didn't know I was here or anything else. And he saw me and he was like, "What, Sonny?" <laughs> <laughs> and then we started hanging out and and you know and I was doing gigs. I did a bunch of gigs with him here in, in Ireland, just as a kind of a three piece. We did. Uh, Conga's acoustic guitar and mandolin all over the place here. Yeah, it's a beautiful record. It's like uh, really rootsy and yeah, too much reverb on it. But anyway, that, that was Jeff. <laughs> that was Jeff. I said, Jeff, turn the turn the reverb down. Oh man, <laughs> reverb's good. 
said, nobody, nobody wants reverb anymore, man. <laughs> Did you guys ever talk about like the Canadian music industry or share kind of war stories or anything like that? Nah, we no, we were no, we just got wasted. <laughs> yeah. Besides the virtual cane stuff, the Americanics, and the, the stuff you released, I should say, with uh, yeah. you also do some solo stuff, man. There's a track called uh, Cold Ground off your solo record that's fucking awesome, dude. I feel like sorrow for the deed I've done. Oh no. Tell you where I'm coming from. Oh, he caught my girl unawares with me, my my shares into our old house. He broke, gambling on his master's talk a little bit about um recording and going out on your own under the name sonny grandish jr for the first time yeah well i mean basically i, I i've been gigging the whole time I've, I've been here with a band called crazy chester but it's a cover band right i'm playing mandolin so the the whole time and uh again it, it was it was i mean that that band was together for 
I guess, kind of 13, 14 years, you know, doing the same kind of things, playing Cork and Munster area, which is sort of the, the very south coast of Ireland. So we we, we, we got as big as we were going to get. Um, so things started to, we started to slow down. And I, I said to myself, look, you know, I, I've had enough of this cover stuff. I, I need to start writing stuff again. So I started it. And then, of course, the, the, the COVID thing hit. So I had a bunch of stuff written because of my uh, YouTube channel. So there's a bunch of music that like, sort of, you know, kind of what, I, what I'd call them, like movie music stuff, you know. That's why it's called Oris Theatrum, the album. It's, mm. it's you know, it's a music for your ears, basically. You know, the, the, the theater for your ears, you know. Um, when the COVID thing struck, I was like, I, I, said, I better just get this stuff out and start going on my own because I can't do anything else. You know, I can't, we, we can't gig anywhere. We can't do anything. I can't, I can't play anywhere. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm out of a job basically. You know, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't gigged in over six months, you know, it's whatever it's been since March past. So I spent most of my time, I have a little studio at home and I did just buried my head into it and started writing songs and that's it. You know, <laughs> I try, try my best to sing them and, uh, you know, that, that, that kind of thing. Um, and there's, uh, that's basically what I did. That's, I, I needed something to do to, to, uh, you know, to keep myself from going crazy being stuck. I live out in the country, you know, uh, in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> you know, and I, basically I live in the middle of nowhere in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> you know, so, um, that 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 really helped me uh, continue along with the thing and the YouTube channel as well, which is great fun. I just I'm just enjoying myself so much with that that I uh, it's it's kind of helped me uh, keep my sanity basically. And also, you know, I basically quit drinking and smoking and all that stuff. Uh, you know, within the last kind of four or five years. So the last the last time I had a drink, it was in L.A. last year because I was I was there for for a um, for Vid Summit, which is a a, a YouTube thing you know so basically you know i i'm 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 hip with all the youtubers now <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've met them all you know casey neistat and peter mckinnon and all those guys all the guys I've, I've met them all at this point so it's great fun and that's basically what i'm doing now is working on a new album um i, I just released a single a couple couple of weeks ago called sometimes a smile and that's with johnny and a bass player from here and and myself that's it. Um, another single coming this month, another next month, and then the album out in December. Cool. Um, anyhow, we'll get you out here soon. Um, now, is there anything that um, we didn't talk about that you uh, either wish you remembered or still remember from the 90s that uh, <laughs> you'd like well, to share? I, 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 don't, I don't think there's anything really... Um, I know that Johnny keeps coming up with things that, that I've forgotten that he, he <laughs> likes to remind me of. <laughs> uh, oh boy. When, when we, when we met Johnny the first time, um, we were, we were doing a tour of the East coast and we were in a Winnebago and Johnny, of course, who's new to the group, doesn't really know us that well. We're in this Winnebago, you know, getting smashed, driving, you know, <laughs> down the road like we, we had a driver obviously and whatever you know so he would be he'd stay sober but we'd be in the back getting wasted anyway <laughs> we but johnny had just broken up with his girlfriend at, the, at, the, at that time this was many many years ago um and we sang him yesterday for 
hours. <laughs> no way. And, yeah, I'm just passing the guitar around. So That's whoever awesome. would get through and sing it, we pass it to Perry. He keeps singing, and we sang him yesterday until the guy almost. I, I'd say he probably almost wanted him. <laughs> Like, well, he didn't. He didn't actually break down and cry because that's what we were trying to make him do. But, it, <laughs> but he didn't. Anyway, that was his. That was his. Uh, his initiation into Boots Lawson. <laughs> <laughs> um, looking back, is there anything that's uh, you? You touched earlier about maybe moving to LA or or something. You know, trying to make more of a mark in these states. Is there anything else you kind of wish you would have done differently? Well, I think in terms of the Boots Lawson thing, I think. If we had a state in L.A. and smartened ourselves up a little bit uh, sooner, <laughs> I, think, I, I think we've managed to do it, but we're all in our 50s. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we, we did it, we did it, but just too late. <laughs> um, I think if we had a, spent more time down there and, and, and spent more time worrying about the music rather than where our next drink was coming from, we probably would have done a whole lot better. You know? Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I would say, I mean, from my perspective, that that, that uh, the, the booze and the drugs killed that band, really. Hmm. You know. Interesting. So, um, we'll, we'll get you out of here on uh, this question. Um, I have a playlist on Apple and Spotify of all '90s can rock, kind of a companion to the podcast, yeah. and I'm asking all the guests to uh, choose two singles and one deep cut from the for the '90s material. So, how would you like? Boots Sauce to be represented on the album or on the playlist. Wow, let's see now. Well, scratching the hole because I I, I just love that tune and it, and it was it was our first single, so that kind of makes some sort of sense. Um, and I think there's a song called um, it's Sadie on the last album. It must have been Sadie, which is a really great little rocker that myself and Alan wrote and wanted to have as the first single instead of the one that was actually released, which was uh, Hey Hey Baby. So we wanted Sadie released, and they forced us to release the other one, huh. which was not as good a song. It's still a great tune, but not, 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 as, not as fun as Sadie was. All right, so those, I really like those two. And then... There's a song called 830 in Spain that I, that I love, but that's on... Sleeping Booty, so you won't be able to find that one. So I guess the next thing would be, uh, I, I suppose, what you need would have to be the other one. Cool. Yeah, just just because it's uh, it really. I mean, uh, I, I think people really like that song, and it kind of touched home. Um, I mean, we had a lot of people come up to us, and uh, young girls especially. You know, hmm. back back in the the no young girls coming near us now. <laughs> Um, um, that's, uh, because of, because it's, it's basically a love story, but myself and, and Al were, you know, kind of, you know, we we, we were, we were sort of joking, you know, we're kind of joking, trying to write like the corniest love song we could, we could possibly write, you know, (laughs) um, but it really, uh, it really, it ended up that people really felt something from the song and we made the mistake of once telling some of these 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 young girls that that uh that we were just kidding and 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 they were heartbroken so we i've never really i've never told anyone again since then that that it was a joke you know or kind of not 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 a joke but um kind of done tongue-in-cheek or 
Yeah, tongue in cheek. And we, I mean, we didn't really mean it, you know. And it, and it wasn't a true story either, you know. It was a story that we made made up to to kind of be the the sappiest love story we could think of, you know, with the with a hard ending, you know. Yeah, because that ending is one of the hardest in the ballad history, I think, man. Yeah, it's, well, that's yeah, tough that's, stuff that's, in there. Man. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's. I think that's why it, it touches people so so hard. And and in fact, I think that. Uh, myself and Alan kind of somewhere under there are, are, are old softies. <laughs> and uh, and that's why it came out the way it did. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today to chat about uh, Boot Sauce, man, and your time in the 90s, man. It's been great. Yeah, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I'm, uh, I got to say that it's been fun um, reminiscing, you know, over the past, I've, I've, I've done a few podcasts in the past uh, couple of years, you know, or even, even the past year, really. Uh, so people have been finding me, I guess, because of my YouTube channel. Yeah, you're YouTube and you're active on Instagram and Twitter and yeah. Facebook and you're accessible, which is cool, man. So that's definitely why yeah. I reached out and you. I really appreciate the support following uh, the Raven Drool stuff too on social media. Oh, absolutely. Media. It's cool. Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. I, like, I mean, the, 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 the world is so much smaller because of all this stuff now. Uh, it, it, it's, um, if I can help in any way, I, I certainly would do so you know because i wish someone had helped me back in the day you know thank you so much for joining us today on raven drool please support the podcast by visiting patreon.com slash rave drool follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to this and if you listen to this on apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating review if you're looking for more naughty's can rock content please find us on twitter facebook youtube and instagram and lastly, if you're looking for music, we have an official playlist on Apple and Spotify. Currently, it's curated by myself, the tracks that I've selected. But as you heard during today's episode, eventually, it'll be curated by the guests themselves. Until next time, friends, take care.